out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Thank you, Jim. Welcome. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop and sometimes beyond. This uh, week, we have our special guest. It's going to be Banco de Gaia because I spoke to Toby Marks a few weeks ago to find out more about everything, basically. So this is the interview. Also, um, Banco has got a new compilation that has just come out titled 30 Times Around the Sun, a track from every year of his career going back to 1989. You'll hear more about that compilation in this interview. And um, what else? I don't know, really. There was just a lot of chat. Oh, yes, and he's also touring. And he's going to come to the Norwich, the Arts Centre, very soon, the 22nd of November, 2019, just in case you're listening to it after that's been and gone. Anyway, this is the first part of the interview, and this is where I've been start, uh, talking and babbling slightly about those wonderful days that was... Planet Dog Records, and this was Toby's response. Toby, it's over to you. Um, yeah, I, I, I vaguely remember those days, 30, <laughs> 25 years ago, whenever it was. It, it's true, yes, because normally, because I do one show, which is the C86 show, which is generally the indie world, and um, and with most of those bands, they have a five-year narrative where they get together and they, they you know, like, hey, sort of, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, then they do, you know, if John Peel picks it up, they get the John Peel session, then they do an album, and that's generally good. The second album, bad, and then they split up. But then one thing that really sort of knocked a lot of those indie bands out was kind of the dance scene that came along in the sort of late 80s. But obviously you were sort of there in, you know, in that wave of kind of Britpop kind of music, weren't you? Yeah, it's funny timing because obviously on the one hand, the, um, the media were all over sort of Blur versus Oasis apparently this kind of legendary battle of supremacy and then followed by Radiohead and Verve. Yes. But, you know, I, I, whilst I was listening to their music, I was existing in a sort of parallel universe of late night clubs and dance music. And um, it just felt like there was a, a lot, lot going on musically at the time. And wherever you looked, I think in the jazz scene as well, there's, there's some interesting stuff going on. I mean, Acid Jazz Records started up around about that time or a bit earlier. Um, there, there was just a lot of innovation happening and it was a very, very exciting time. Well, I can remember, yes, because there was, there was kind of, like you, yeah, like you said, there was that kind of the initial kind of 80s, that, that sort of the second summer of love in 87 probably, wasn't it, where we got very excited with the Happy Mondays and the Soup Dragons and the Stone Roses came along and a, and a guy called Gerald and, you know, and obviously people like me were just obsessed with John Peel at that time. So yeah. that, that kind of going to Glastonbury in those early years and sort of hanging out on the edges of the festival uh, with the you know the travelers and I, were you part of that kind of scene that was kind of ha- had developed um i certainly was playing at festivals I mean, one thing one thing i think was actually quite significant back then was the fact that what had been maybe more mainstream events like glastonbury and womad festival and even reading to an extent a little bit later on um, started adopting the underground dance culture uh, and decided that this was actually relevant to them and, and wasn't something which was you know, existing elsewhere. Um, I mean, in the early 80s, I, I actually went to quite a lot of free festivals 
um, back in the Peace Convoy days. Oh, my so God, I, we remember them so well. <laughs> well, I and I remember very well coming to Norwich a couple of times. Uh, uh, in, uh, what was the place called? Something Common? Um, anyway, it, it, it was, yeah, there, there were a couple of festivals up there which were, uh, I have very, very fond memories of. That was back in sort of 83, 84, something like that. Yes. Um, so when when the uh, the mainstream commercial festivals started adopting um, the music I was into, it was quite exciting because it felt like a meeting of those two worlds. So there'd been, you know, back in the mid eighties, Glastonbury Festival existed on the commercial end, and like if you're involved in the free festival scene, then Glastonbury was was totally nothing of any interest whatsoever. And that merging of of bringing the two worlds together was was actually a very important catalyst because it meant that the underground ideas and the more alternative ideas were starting to get a little bit access to facilities and funding and audiences and also the commercial events were getting a, a really really healthy breath of fresh air an infusion of fresh blood which meant that they they started um you know you end up with things like the mutant waste company uh, and now what's obviously turned into um the sort of naughty corner at glastonbury and the whole after dark end of things um that really came out of that era of bringing together these different worlds and i i was just very very felt very very lucky to be part of it both as a as a as a kind of audience member and later on as a performer yes because your musical career though started with heavy metals isn't it and drumming mm -hmm. so because because of that period then because i i sort of was quite young during then but i was also very aware of people like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, and my brother was really into prog rock. He was a bit older than me, so I'd sort of, been, you know, was very keen on the work of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, with a bit of heavy metal thrown in. So, did you, were you also a bit of a status quo fan at that stage? Um, I, I don't know why you said status quo in particular. I will admit that when I was about 14, I quite liked status quo. I would also add that probably a few years later, I wasn't so keen on them. I'd moved on just to defend myself a little bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in... Uh, Everyone loved the quo, though. I mean, you know, that was one of the bands. If you said anything about the quo, you would get beaten up. That's why it's slightly ensconced in my brain, actually. Well, the the, the quo fan was very, they were touchy. Well, and to be fair, um, I do think in their in their earlier years, they did some very interesting, quite innovative stuff. Um, they weren't ever sort of groundbreaking and, and you know, mold breaking the way that Pink Floyd or something were. But they, there was a, a sort of a gritty earthiness to what they did. Um, going back to the sort of, I, mean, I think tracks like Caroline, um, um, yeah, Paper Plane, Paper possibly, plane, we love and then plane. later on they kind of became a bit of a pastiche of themselves. But when they were inventing themselves, they were quite interesting. Yes. So, but um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and I got into rock music very early on, thanks to Hawkwind, actually, of all people. Um, I stumbled across Hawkwind on top of the pops, I think, when I was, God, I was seven or eight, and it changed my whole view of the world, frankly. Um, and so I was just soaking up everything I could possibly find. I, you know, there's a rec secondhand record shop near where I, where I lived, and I, I, if I'd heard of a band, I'd buy the record and see what it sounded like, because back in those days, of course, you had no other way of hearing stuff. You couldn't go on Spotify or 
or YouTube, if you wanted to find out what Nazareth sounded like and none of your friends had a Nazareth record, no. then the option was pick one up in a second-hand record shop or, as I discovered, um, the local library. I was going to say the local library was big in our days because mm. that was kind of like for £5 a year you could take out four records, record them, home music, home taping is killing music, apparently, but we didn't care. Um, I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't think in South London where I lived we even had to pay £5. I think it was just part of the service. So. Right. <laughs> I just but, remember yeah. this kind of fantastic deal that you could just kind of go, oh, I like that record cover. Mm. I will take it out and explore it and um, think, oh, it's Spirit, The Twelve yeah. Dreams, and think, God, I've just discovered the best band in the world. <laughs> yeah, it, it was certainly a great gateway to discover all sorts of things. And, you know, very, very obscure and unusual things I wouldn't have found in my local record shop, because um, if I was looking at a heavy metal section in the second-hand record shop, I wouldn't have come across, um, I don't know, Philip Glass or, or Bartok or something. Yes. Well, no, not quite. So then in the 80s, though, you you, you avoided the, the indie world and played Beatles music for tourists in Portugal. Is that right? Um, I had a brief period. Um, one, one year I went out, yeah, mid-80s, I went to Portugal with my girlfriend just to see if we could find something more exciting than uh, minus 18 degrees and snow in the Midlands of England. Uh, so we just basically got a lift or I think we hitched effectively down to Portugal in February and my my girlfriend was a good, very good singer and I took a guitar with me and we had no plans about what we were going to do we we're just going to see what we could find because we'd heard that you know it's it's not a bad life down there and we ended up getting asked to play in a bar because someone heard us playing one night and then that turned into three or four or five nights a week and so yeah we had a summer uh playing Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and cover versions, um, which was a very good experience to be playing, playing professionally every night. Um, I, I learned a lot from it. Um, and I used to know a hundred songs, over a hundred songs off by heart, lyrics and chords. And I can't remember one anymore. But <laughs> That could just be age. Well, it, and also lack of lack of exercise. I haven't actually played many Simon and Garfunkel songs for the last 25 years or so. Um, and there are one or two songs which are now on my permanent blacklist I never want to hear, let alone play them again. Yes, I say goodbye to love. So then, as we... Um trundle through the 80s you you know that like like i mentioned slowly that the, the dance the dance scene was sort of emerging much more wasn't it and you had that chicago house stuff that john peel was playing and we'd had sort of public enemy and ll cool j which also he played so how did you all sort of you all sort of foray from um you know the sound of silence to 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 rave how did you make that step it's interesting you mentioned uh, john peel because he is quite quite central to that i think it was 1987 uh, possibly 86 uh, or possibly 88 but thereabouts anyway uh, I was listening to John Peel one night and he played a track called Paid in Full by Eric B and Rakim oh god we uh, loved Eric B yes and it was the Cold Cut remix yes and um, it includes a sample of the Israeli singer Ofra Haza yes and I was getting quite interested in in um, music from other parts of the world world music as it's called back then um and so when I heard this kind of interesting groove mixed with um, Middle Eastern vocals, I was instantly, you know, I stopped. Like, oh, what's this? This is an interesting thing. I haven't heard this before because I've been listening to a bit of jazz and a bit of this and that. So I come across um, John McLaughlin and Shakti 
um, if anyone remembers them, uh, who fused uh, electronic jazz and oh, sorry, electronic, sort of post Miles Davis style jazz and um, Indian music. So the idea of fusing music from different cultures had already kind of attracted me. Uh, and when I heard Paid in Full, I just thought that is something I would really like to explore. And God, can you imagine all the possibilities? Yes. Uh, and so, yes, I did imagine all the possibilities. And so I spent a lot of years um, trying random combinations of things to see what did or didn't work. And did you come across the the Beastie Boys, Paul's mm. Boutique, which is obviously, and, they were, and then Chumbawamba had a go with a record that never got released because Jesus H. Christ, because of so many samples that they never got clearance. So it just got forgotten. And yeah, and and um, uh, t- uh, of course there was, K- um, got Bill Drummond wasn't there as well. He mm. was also starting to sort of play with those ideas, not realise, and there was also copyright issues as well. Never mind. Well, the KLF, the KLF were very central and fundamental to the growth of Banco de Gaia because in eighty seven eight when whenever it was uh, when the KLF Chill Out album was released, um, it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. So you had samples of Acker Bilk and Elvis Presley with a bit of steel guitar and atmospheric, really gentle, peaceful, kind of new age, as we would have said back in those days, um, synths and sounds with trains going past and stuff. And I was completely blown away by it. And so, A, we had Eric B and Rakim and Ofra Haza, and I thought, I want to do that. And then I heard Chill Out, and it's like, I want to do that. Yes. The whole that that actually probably sums up Banco de Gaia uh, as as well as you can. The combination of those two things merged together is what I was trying to do when I started Banco. Did you have a guilty pleasure with Sisters of Mercy as well with the um, one of their tracks that had a I think it had the same singer on as well, given her vocal kind of contribution. I. I didn't. I wasn't really aware of their stuff. I may have heard it, but I certainly didn't know about it. If I did, yes, there was. We were we were getting big on fusion. There was also a, a sort of a dance combo in Berlin called Dissidenten, who used to sort of merge yeah. kind of North American, North African sort of rhythms with some sort of rave thing, which was also kind of mesmerising. Again, that was a John Peel, yeah, yeah, play as well, which he kind of introduced us to everything, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, John Peel was so important. Um, and I'm so grateful for all the things I heard on his show, which I wouldn't have heard elsewhere. I mean, John Cooper Clark, I first heard on John Peel, and um, Kevin Ayres, I first heard on John Peel. I mean, God, endless things. So, you know, yes. I wish there were more. I wish there were more DJs and radio shows like his now. Frankly. And then Augustus Pablo, we were blown by that. But then in Glastonbury, headlining was the Orb, which must have again been a sort of a a kind of a moment that you thought, God, anything is possible. These are guys raving and the whole festival is now on drugs. The old headline Glastonbury, I didn't know that. Well, <laughs> they were pretty oh, big. Well, I just remember everybody going to see the orb. Right. And, I, 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 I certainly wasn't there that year then because um, the first, uh, I went to Glastonbury in 86 and I should have known uh, in retrospect, it rained constantly. I had a really really rubbish weekend i briefly saw ian jury which is kind of nice apart from the fact it's raining constantly um but it was yeah it was total mud fest 
uh, which set the template for most of my Glastonbury's. Yes. Uh, but after 86, I didn't go again until 94 when I got invited to play. So I think maybe I missed one or two interesting ones where maybe Orbital were playing for the first time and things like that. So I certainly didn't see the Orb there, sadly. Yes. But then... You had your moment in 1994 at the height of... Because we'd had grunge and Britpop was definitely happening. And then we had that whole other scene with, yeah, like Orbital and System 7 and 808 State and lots of bands that we were all sort of getting very excited by. So did that album come together relatively smoothly? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I started Bank Out of Guy as a concept, at least, in 1989. And... I, I, at that time, I was living in Glasgow, um, trying to play uh, jazz guitar. I was trying to be a jazz guitarist, uh, badly, I have to add. And um, before that, I'd obviously been into rock and heavy metal and, and doing covers and stuff. Um, and I reached a kind of crossroads and I started hearing Acid House on um, the radio and here and there, as well as the stuff John Peel was playing. And it kind of changed my worldview. So instead of wanting to just play guitar, I became absolutely fascinated by samplers and the potential that they brought to the world. Um, so I stepped aside and started doing really, really basic dance stuff. Um, I think I thought I was doing house music at the time, but it was pretty rubbish. So it took a few years of kind of you know, honing my skills before anything got released. So by the time Maya came out in 1994, I'd had five years of sketching tunes and having ideas. So that was relatively quick to put together because I had quite a, a, a big backlog of ideas and, and half worked out ideas to finish off, as it were. Um, then in 95, Last Train to Lassa, which um, obviously is the one which more people are familiar with, that was actually written in a year um, after Maya came out. It's like, oh, um, I'd better do another one. And so having had all this time to do the first one, I suddenly had to do the second one very quickly. And um, for whatever reason, it came together very smoothly and the ideas kept flowing. And I think it was a very open field back then. So it felt like almost anything I tried was going to be slightly innovative. So I wasn't afraid to try anything because I, I wasn't copying anyone. I was having to work it all out for myself, which is actually very exciting. Whereas now trying to find something which no one else has done before is getting really hard work. Yes. Well, I it's, could imagine. And, you know, because like I sort of slightly mentioned a bit earlier about that kind of the five year narrative for indie bands, especially in the 80s, you, you know, for you, you've just been sort of managing to get that inspiration and sort of keep it going. So what is the sort of the not the trick, but what is the kind of essence of being able to sort of like, yes, find the creative juice to sort of think, right, I've got an idea. Let's go with this one. Well, I can only talk for myself because other people have very different ways of working in different timescales and so on but one thing after those first few albums um people may have noticed that if they've been following my career that the, the gaps between albums have got quite you know it's a few years of time um so for me personally i can't keep banging out an album every year it's, it's not how i work i need to get excited about stuff i need to find new stimulus and and let it all settle for a while before i i put it into uh new material so my secret, I guess, is not rushing to do new stuff and only waiting until I'm really excited about doing it and then doing it. Um, and I've had the freedom to do that because I set up my own record label in 1998, which meant that I didn't have uh, a bunch of label people um, leaning over my shoulder, breathing down my neck, saying, we need another album next week, another album next week. Come on, one album a year, one album a year. I haven't had that pressure. 
yeah. which has been, you know, in many ways a privilege. And yet arguably, it means I haven't released as much stuff as I might have done. But I think it means that when I have written stuff and released stuff, it's because I really want to, and it's hopefully because it's good. Yes. Well, absolutely. And I mean, with, you know, like I've always been obsessed with Bowie, David Bowie, and um, he obviously sort of played with different people and, you know, changed styles slightly and, you know, locations as well. So have you managed to sort of, you know, find yourself sort of working with different people for different albums and periods and then sort of moving on to other sort of creative collaborations as well? Yes and no. One of the one of the um, downsides, if that's the right word to use, of Banco de Gaia that I've found is that I, I've always felt a little constrained in what Banco de Gaia is allowed to do, if that makes sense. Um, partly because it it came, you know, I, I started off doing fundamentally dance music, with it, leaning towards the ambient and the and the, the world music, but it's still fundamentally dance music. And so I am categorised in everybody's mind as a dance music album which meant that if I wanted to go off and do something a bit not dance music, it's very hard to do that. In the same way that Black Sabbath releasing a jazz album would raise a few eyebrows. Um, So I felt a little constrained by that. Um, On uh, that, aside from that, I have done other things with other people uh, or on my own, which haven't been Banco de Gaia. Um, Not really seeing the light of day very much until actually this year when I released an album uh, with another, another uh, composer called Andrew Heath, and we did a, an ambient album together, uh, purely ambient, based on field recordings all over Great Britain. We went all over the country uh, recording wildlife and urban stuff and machinery and uh, transport. And we made a very, very sparse ambient album out of that, uh, which took me back to playing guitar a lot more as well, which was lovely. Um and that's been really enjoyable and that hopefully is signposting where I'm going to be going in the future that I'll be doing more of that kind of uh, collaborative non-Banco de Gaia stuff because that was released on as Toby Marks and Andrew Heath rather than the Banco de Gaia. So Banco um, is a really important project for me and I want to carry on doing that. But there are other things I want to do which just don't fit under that name or under that umbrella, which I now want to start doing on the sides and start releasing more, whereas historically I've not really done that. Yes, because when you did a you did a, an album 2016, which was the, the ninth of the nine hearts, you collaborated with quite a few people, including there was Sophie Barker and also Tim, who I've come across, because mm. he was based in Norwich for a long time, No Man. So did that also feel an exciting kind of, project and challenge yes and um <coughs> excuse me that album was was a bit of a risk actually and and as i said having felt constrained by other people's definitions of what banker the guys should be i was actually really feeling like i wanted to basically do a prog rock album um so i'd met tim a few years back and um, we'd become really good friends and had a lot of shared interest in, in music taste and so on um and i'd also met james eller who was the bass player for the the um and has played with all sorts of people over the years um and so it felt like i wanted to draw in these people who weren't from the dance music world weren't from the electronic music world who would bring a different um energy and different different sensibility to it but always being conscious that i am supposed to be banker a guy who does ambient dance music so how do i make this work so it felt a little risky in a way that 
if I just followed my heart and done the music I purely wanted to do, it might actually literally have been a prog rock album. But I I wanted to, you know, keep some banker de guy in there. So we kind of made it a, a um a blend of the two. Um and for a couple of years I was touring um as a three piece band with James Ella and my uh my good friend Ted Duggan, the drummer, who's played with me over the years in various permutations of of live combinations. And it really felt sometimes like we were going out being a three-piece rock band. And I think it confused one or two people as well because it, it was dance music but presented with a very rock and prog vibe, uh, which I absolutely loved. It's where I where I was at and what I wanted to do at the time. Um, and lots of people did like it. I think one or two people were, oh, this isn't the Banco de Gaia I remember from Last Train to Lassa. So, <laughs> no. and yes. so that albatross continues to haunt me um, and I have to be aware of it. But it was really exciting working with people from different fields because it just brought a different, it, it allowed me to explore different sides of, of my musical taste because I, I listen to lots of stuff apart from dance music. In fact, actually, to be honest, I've listened to very little dance music these days. Um, and it's really nice to get to explore those other areas which I you know, left on hold for 20 years or so. And the, one, the other thing that I've noticed with, with a lot of people who've been in, you know, bands over the decades is kind of um, compiling, getting their archives. Have you managed to sort of keep a track and a hold on, on sort of your own music? Because I know there's, there's those sort of tricky worlds of publishing and, and sort of going, God, I really would love to just go back into the attic, find the, you know, the recordings and put them out. And I just noticed that 30 years, I know you're not going back quite that far, but you know, 30 years seems to be a period of time where people often think, God, you know, I really would love to just kind of get those, either the John Peel sessions or those other recordings that we did that never got, you know, put out or live album. So I just wonder if you've managed to sort of keep track of everything that you've done. Uh, you say 30 years, um, I don't go back that far. I mean, 89 is when I started Bank of the Guy. And actually, this year we released a uh, uh, a digital compilation called 30 Years Around the Sun, which includes one track which I wrote, recorded or released in every year from 1989 onwards. So um, yes, it's the short answer. Uh, the the big advantage, I've, or big benef- one big benefit of having my own record label is that I own all the copyrights and have done for the last uh, 20 odd years. And I was lucky at the start of the 2000s um, 2001, I think it was, to buy back the copyrights to my first few albums, which were with Planet Dog. So I own everything, which means I I have access to everything that exists. So what we've been doing for the last few years is uh, starting with Maya in to, uh, 2014, we, were, we released a 20th anniversary edition, which was the original album remastered, plus various other variations and outtakes and and re and different mixes from back in 1994 when we recorded it plus some new remixes done by some of my favorite artists so that was a a three cd set and then in 2015 we released last train to lassa 20th anniversary edition which was a four cd set because there was so much extra stuff we could bring into that which had never been released before so it's actually been very exciting and very interesting going back through the old tapes and the old archives, rediscovering what was there, which I'd forgotten about in, in a large part. Um, and it's been very well received. Um, I'm very pleased that it's not just been kind of rubbish outtakes, which really shouldn't have seen the light of day, but people actually seem to actually really like the extra stuff we've, we've brought to the surface. 
Um, whether we can carry on doing that into the future much longer, I'm not sure. I mean, this year we we reissued um, Magical Sounds of Banco de Gaia 20th Anniversary Edition, which is a two CD set with various outtakes and remixes. Um, as we get into the you know, more recent releases, they're they're because I changed the way I work over the years and technology has changed, there are less outtakes and less alternative mixes saved. Um, so it may get harder to do in the future. But yeah, in a nutshell, um, yes, plowing the archive has been a very exciting and very interesting experience. And amazingly satisfying, I'd imagine. Did it feel strange when you went back 30 years and went, wow, this is it. This is, this is where it started. What uh, was weird, what was weird was say, coming up with the idea of 30 times around the sun, which is the, the 30th anniversary uh, compilation saying, right, I want one track from every year. Right. What have I got from 1989? And then the few things I had recorded from 1989 were awful because of course, I'd gone from being a rock and jazz guitarist to suddenly being a, a house producer. And I was only just starting to learn how to use samplers and how to play keyboards and stuff. Um, and it was a real challenge trying to find anything which was even half good enough to, to let people hear. Um, <laughs> but, but on the positive, we did find something. Um, off the top of my head, I can't actually remember. I think it track. was that called Indie Hop, Alive. Yes, it was. Okay, so yes, so that was the very, very, very beginning of Banco de Guy was myself and Andy Guthrie, um, who, who um, has carried on doing other stuff since. Um, but we formed Banco de Guy together. The, the name and the concept was my idea. But he said to me one day, I'm doing this gig. He was playing kind of he was playing keyboards in a reggae band. I was also into funk and getting into housey stuff. And he said, why don't you come and play guitar? I'm doing this gig. Um, and I had a guitar synth at the time, which kind of lent itself to working with electronic stuff. And so we got together for that gig and it was really fun. And we said, we should do more of this. And that was basically how Banco de Gaia started. And Indie Hop was, I think, recorded at our very first gig. Um, and it's very simplistic. But as the name almost suggests, or could suggest, um, it had this slightly Indian vibe um, riff to it. And then this kind of hip hop drum groove and a you know interesting bass line. And so that was the the, the basic ingredients of Banco de Guy was dance music, world music thrown together, uh, with some live playing and some some you know rock and jazz influence. Um so yeah, that I, I was really pleased to rediscover that recording of that gig and go, Oh my god, we have something from nineteen eighty nine. Actually, I think we could let people hear this. Obviously, it's not kind of all as shiny and wonderful as Last Train to Lassa or The Ninth of Nine Hearts or whatever, because it was just a live recording in the local pub. But it's still interesting. Yes, absolutely. Um, because actually, as, a, as an aside, I should also mention um, the show we're doing at Norwich Arts Centre, Andy Guthrie is going to be playing because he's carried on doing uh, music on his own. We, we carried on working together for a couple of years. Then he went off and did his own thing. Um, and he was in a couple of side trance acts called prana and medicine drum back in the early days um but he's now working under the name of 100th monkey and he will be doing the support slot at norwich art center when we come in november my god did you say prana yes the 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 chanty you know healing field group or different group because i can remember sitting around in teepees and people chanting but they were called prana but i that must be a different there brand. may there may have been two pranas i think there's one more new agey acoustic one and then there's the electronic 
dance one. Right, that makes sense. Uh, although I think the um, the vibe is very similar. Uh, <laughs> Maybe one was the acoustic version of the other, I'm not sure. Who knows? Because that, bizarrely, was the same... 89 was the year that Adamski brought out Live and Direct, which I thought at the time was incredibly exciting. And then we'd had... I know he was a one-hit wonder, Guru Josh. We loved Guru Josh. But did you did you feel... Because you've survived really well, and some of the people at that t- around that period haven't survived so well, have they? Have you managed to sort of... How have you managed to keep your head together? Um, thank you for suggesting I have managed to keep my head together. It doesn't always feel like it. Um, I think having control of the record label gave me a freedom and and gave me gave me the ability to control the pace of things. As I said earlier, I go two or three years without b- between releases because that's how long it would take me to write an album. So I haven't had that incessant pressure of record labels saying you must write something, must write something, must write something. I think that's really helped. Um, I also kind of tidied up my lifestyle and my health some years back. So I've been looking after myself for a long time. Um, obviously, back in the late 80s and 90s, you know, every, every innovative music scene, in my opinion, since the 1950s uh, has coincided, uh, coincidentally or not, uh, with changes in recreational habits let's put it that way yes so you know rock and roll was was you know lots of youngsters suddenly discovering lots of sugar in pepsi cola and alcohol and then the 60s was obviously the 60s and the 70s was punk and speed and the 80s was acid house and all the associated uh, recreational pursuits that went with that um so i've that's now history for me for, that's been history for me for a long time so i looked after myself and I, I i know other people who are around back then who still carried on living the same lifestyle and you know i'm not going to criticize or judge anyone for what they've chosen to do um i'm amazed they can still do it um it's not my choice but um for me personally that's one reason i've managed to keep things going and keep things together because i have chosen to actually look after myself and look after my body in different ways um and being in charge of my career has given me uh, a freedom from stress that other people maybe didn't have um and luck frankly i think i just got lucky that i was in the right place at the right time finally in the early 90s having had you know 20 years of trying to be in rock bands and jazz bands and doing you know, trying to get a breakthrough as a musician, I finally found myself somewhere where it worked um, and has had has some, had some longevity, which I'm very grateful for. Yes, because I always remember when you were talking about that as a decade, all those periods of music. And I always remember because, you know, I've always loved Motorhead and Lemmy was just like, there's some things you can touch, but, you know, avoid heroin. It will just destroy you. He's seen too yeah. many deaths. So yes, it starts well and then it gets messy, doesn't it really? And I, I did an interview with Dave Brock from Hawkwind and he, you know, he just cleared up his lifestyle and had a vegetarian diet and eats really healthy and he's still rocking. And you think, Dave Brock, Hawkwind. Yeah. You, you know, you should write a cookery book. <laughs> it's, it's funny because some, some people I think thrive on the image. I mean, let me or Keith Richards were classic examples of people who had this this reputation, this image of being these kind of monsters who just consumed everything. Um, but actually, to carry on doing things as long as they did, uh, or as long as they are, in Dave's case, 
uh, I think it's safe to say they've had to um, stop consuming everything. Yes, and I think, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, did you have a, when you look back, did you have a moment where you just thought, a kind of, yes, yeah, as just one of those, I'm going to stop doing that. This is really getting on my nerve. Um, I, no, I just kind of evolved. Um, I mean, I remember back in the early 80s when I was going to um, a lot of free festivals, um, thinking, why would I ever not want to live like this? And I look back now, it's like, why would I want to live in a tent in a, in a muddy field with a, you know, a hole in the ground for a toilet um, and, and everything else that went with it? But at the time, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then gradually I didn't want to do that so much anymore. I wanted to do something else. So I think it's just, yeah, just personal evolution. Yes, I think once you've, you've stayed in either a teepee or a bender and done a sweat lodge in the middle of winter, you think, oh, I don't know. It's a young person's game, isn't it, really? Incidentally, I've just remembered, uh, Eaton Common was where the, the free festivals were back in the early 80s. Yes. Somewhere near the university, but out on the edge. That's there's right. A scout, there's a scout camp nearby, I remember that. Yes, they were <laughs> yeah. quite famous. Well, during the 70s in this area, we had like the Barsham and... Um, Barsham fairs and Albion fairs so that was the kind of 70s then the peace convoy slightly destroyed them and then there was yep. a little bit of a gap and then suddenly the dance scene and you know you had Castle Mol Molvin Molton Castle Morton yeah and then you know everything started up again and yeah, yeah it just dance music I mean are you kind of boggled because obviously Yes, with the dance scene you know like most things do go right you've had you know we've done you know the 60s psychedelic you know we've done prog rock we've done punk even indie but dance music does just like doesn't stop does it well yeah but neither does does rock or jazz uh, or indie actually um and you look at some of the indie bands who are still going 30 years later um or have reformed 30 years later and are still going i think we we, we live in a in a world where people are consuming more and more music and I use the word consuming deliberately because I think people's attention to music has gone downhill quite a lot um not in all cases but I think you know, music as a kind of general background thing to just have as part of your day-to-day -day life has become a bit as a composer it's a bit demeaning to to find that I'm just apparently writing wallpaper but sorry that's a, an aside um um Dance music has kind of evolved, but also is going around in circles these days, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, I remember saying in, in 1997, um, my theory that every 10 years there would be a musical revolution fueled by social change and drugs um, from the 1950s onwards seemed to work 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. In the 90s, so we got to 1996, and I was thinking, right, what's next? What's next? I cannot imagine what the next revolution is going to be. I just can't see it. And then the Spice Girls happened. And sadly, I think what, hap what happened in the 90s was that the, the big industry got control and basically destroyed the underground in any commercial sense. And so since then, there's been no, no real progression and no real innovation in overground music. There may be interesting things going on in, in you know, tiny bars somewhere on people's bedrooms, but it just never sees the light of day now because it's been drowned out by X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and Endless, and now it's K-pop bands. So dance music to me has just become this kind of very generic, very defined, repetitive 
thing where the next thing you hear is like, oh yeah, I heard that 30 years ago. I heard that 20 years ago. In the same way that indie has, you know, the number of times I hear a new band going, but that's just the Kinks, you know, or or these days, but that's just Oasis. No, so sadly, I think dance music is a little bit um, um, stifled, and there are some really interesting things happening in the in the drum and bass and dubstep end of things. Um, and there's some, actually, I don't know what even what the words are anymore. There, there's some interesting stuff happening where you kind of get a, a fusion of post dubstep, post glitch and experimental electronic music coming together, um, which I'm quite interested in. Uh, but I'm, I'm not convinced it's got a, a mainstream audience. But commercial dance music is just four to the floor, house music for a Friday night at the disco like it ever was, in the same way that rock music is drinks and beers and jump up and down to a loud band. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But equally, I doubt you're going to have anything as innovative as Black Sabbath or Pink Floyd in the rock scene. And I doubt you're going to have anything as innovative as The Orb or Underworld in the dance music scene at the moment. Yes. And That's when you, the, when you the, see those... With me to say, and I'm probably going to get really slagged off now by lots of young producers saying i'm doing something amazingly different but anyway that's just my old person's view <laughs> yes well, i know we we all say these things but do, do you sort of cringe or i don't know were you a bit amazed with the superstar dj and when you see those kind of films with you know like you think my god there's sixty thousand people to watch one person who's now going to have a nervous breakdown and not cope i mean how did you you know how yeah. do you sort of reflect on that kind of pressure and kind of stardom well, that's just the the horrible commercialization of music yet again you know is is the same as um same as happened in in rock music and pop music um what what i what I find funny is the idea that one person with a USB stick can walk onto a stage in front of a hundred thousand people and those hundred thousand people will treat him like the messiah or her like the messiah. And all they're doing is effectively miming to a pre-recorded set. And you know, this happens. This is not me making it up. A lot of live dance music is not particularly live anymore. And a lot of DJs aren't doing a whole lot on stage anymore. And I just think it's incredible that that people buy into the mythology of the superstar. The whole point when when I started out in dance music and the underground dance scene, the whole Planet Dog and Megadog ethos, was that it wasn't about stars, it wasn't about personalities, it was about the event. So you go to Club Dog, there'd be a thousand people, you'd all be sharing the experience of you know, this wonderful energy, this wonderful atmosphere, and it wasn't about worshipping the band on stage or the DJ up in the booth, it was about us all coming together in a room, having this amazing time. Um, I, I remember when I first went to... Um, heaven in London uh, in the late 80s, which was one of the, uh, the sort of seminal acid house clubs. I didn't even know where the DJ was, and it's utterly irrelevant. All I, I was surrounded by music and I was surrounded by people, and that's what mattered. So the whole kind of commodification, is that, is that the right word, um, of superstar DJs and turning them into the latest iteration of pop stars is, is fine. It's inevitable. It's what the mainstream industry is going to do. Um, but it kind of no, misses the point in many ways. Yes, but those early ones, there was a sort of philosophy or certainly some sort of idea of, you know, a bit like the first Woodstock festival, there was kind of this, we're going to change the world. And 
now it looks like, God, you couldn't really believe that. And then you think, actually, they really did believe that because there was such a enthusiasm. And I, you know, I can remember those kind of early ravey free festivals. There was a sort of sense of being on a mission and it was just really important to, to do those, you know, have those events and be part of something that felt amazing. Yeah, and that, that really saddened me in the 90s because in the late 80s it felt like just possibly just possibly we could change the world slightly in the same way in the 70s i'm sure the people involved in the original punk scene and certainly in the 60s a lot of people felt like what we're doing is new we have this new energy this new perspective this new new push to make things different we don't want the conservative old-fashioned way we want things to be new and different and it felt like just maybe we would have enough of an effect we would ripple down through society the changes in, in self-awareness and in how people interacted and the energy which we were the, the environments and the, and the atmospheres we are creating together felt so special and sadly I, we we ended up in this country and in its own way in the us um with establishments who kicked back very very hard against that um which you know in a way i could take as a compliment it felt like oh look we really were achieving something and so they had to really push hard back against that so we ended up with margaret thatcher and ronald reagan um really you know undermining everything we were trying to do and as I say, you ended up with the Spice Girls 10 years later, which just killed the music industry completely from my point of view. Yes. The, the chance of revolutionary music went out the window at that point. And did you also have that sense of community with other artists at the, you know, at the same time? Did you sort of, was there a good vibe like, you know, with the Aphex Twin or Loop or Eat Static or any of those people? I mean, did you, was there a sort of exchange of ideas or did everyone sort of sit in their own bedroom? I, I can only speak for myself, but two things in my case. A, I'm I'm fairly introverted um, and um, quite happy to spend time on my own and do things on my own. So I wasn't looking for being part of a scene necessarily. Um, as well as I, initially I lived in in a small town in the Midlands. So I wasn't in London. I wasn't where everyone else in inverted commas was. So I was pretty isolated and wasn't really, you know, working with other people, hanging out with other people, going to other people's gigs. Um, after after the Midlands, I moved down to Somerset to, to a village, so even more isolated in that respect. So, yeah, for me personally, it wasn't a matter of, of, of a scene developing, but certainly when I went to London and in the early days doing the Megadog shows, it really felt like you know, I, was, I, I was dropping in to visit this scene I was part of and then going back home to the Midlands again. Yes. I know, I often wonder. And what would you, just list, lastly, what would you kind of say to an, your 18-year-old self or sort of one bit of advice that you think, God, I've really learnt that through being here and going through decades, years and decades of experiences that would have just been good to have known when I started? I'm not sure I want to answer that question right now. Um, <laughs> given given where we are culturally, societally and, and um, globally, it's, um, it's a disaster, uh, isn't it? whatever advice I might have had when I was 18 feels completely and utterly irrelevant. Um, no, I find myself in a, in a very, very different world to the one I grew up in. And every day is, is a, a struggle to kind of try to adapt to it. So I'm not sure I'm in a position to give anyone advice about anything right now. Yes. What I would say is if you're a musician or a producer or DJ or whatever, um, whilst, you know, 
if you want to follow your dream to make a commercial career out of it and earn a living fine go and play beatles songs in the algarve um or whatever the equivalent is for you but always make sure you find time to, to create the art you want to create don't ever stop doing that just to chase the money that would be my my gift excellent well that's good that's a really good one well look thank you ever so much toby for giving me the time for this and um we'll see you in norwich at the good old yeah. art center my pleasure i'm looking forward to it and, it'd be uh, amazing I'll, I'll, i will maybe or maybe not try to uh to revive the spirit of eaton common probably not you might do a little bit where patchouli <laughs> yeah again there are many things i left behind somewhere in the distant past so <laughs> i don't know there's a guilty pleasure in it really anyway look thanks and have a great evening and see you in norwich soon yeah you too thank you very much take care bye cheers bye <laughs>